Welcome to the third episode of the 44th World Hospital Congress podcast series from the International Hospital Federation. I'm Ron Labiter, the Chief Executive Officer of the International Hospital Federation, and I'll be your host for this episode. In our podcast series, we have invited one of our esteemed speakers from our upcoming World Hospital Congress taking place in Barcelona, Spain this November. Our guest today is Director General of the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers and Associations. This is a global association of pharmaceutical research companies. He's also the Secretary of the Global Biopharmaceutical CEO Roundtable. He was instrumental in creating the AMR Action Fund. This is a groundbreaking partnership that raised nearly a billion dollars to bring new antibiotics to patients by 2030. He also represents the biopharmaceutical industry on the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator. This is a unique global collaboration with the WHO and others to accelerate the development, production, equitable access to the COVID-19 tests, treatments, and vaccines. Please welcome Thomas Quinney. Hey, Thomas. Thanks so much for doing this podcast. Let's get right into the first question. Can you give us some examples on how the collaboration between governments and regulators and the pharmaceutical industry differed for the COVID-19 vaccines? I believe that the collaboration to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic was unique in several respects, not just between governments and pharmaceutical companies, but also within the industry. From the first days of the pandemic, actually, the industry realized that this is different. This is the biggest global health challenge the world has faced since Spanish flu in 1918-19 and required a unique set of response. The industry did so by calling out for collaboration within the industry. For example, when you look at the vaccine development, you have collaborations between universities and Big Pharma, Oxford and AstraZeneca, Big Pharma and Biotech, such as Pfizer and BioNTech. Within Big Pharma, for example, GSK and Sanofi. And in many respects, you also had similar unique collaborations between governments and pharma. For example, I've heard European heads of state say we all owe a big debt to the U.S. taxpayer because BARDA invested at risk quite a bit of money to co-fund and risk share the vaccine development and scaling up of manufacturing. We have also seen a unique set of response, for example, from regulatory agencies. Vaccine makers did carry out clinical trials and vaccine production at the same time. No corners were cut, but many phases were done in parallel rather than as is normally done in sequence, where you do have up to two, three months interval between phase one, phase two and phase three of clinical trials. Regulatory agencies and vaccine manufacturers agreed early on to do rolling submissions so that we saw vaccine development in a record time. Historically, the fastest vaccine ever developed was four years for an Ebola vaccine. Here, we had 326 days between the declaration of the pandemic and the first emergency use approval of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. 
This could not have happened without so many people within the industry, but also within regulatory agencies, governments working out 24-7. And we saw what I would call regulatory agility, which means regulatory agencies clearly going beyond the norm because everybody realized the world is anxiously and impatiently waiting for the vaccines to show us light at the end of the tunnel of this pandemic, which brought so much disaster and strain and mourning. There were so many lives lost, but also the economic cost was tremendous. And I think everybody stood up to the challenge, realizing this is not business as usual. Thank you, Thomas. That was an outstanding answer. Let's move on to the question about distribution of the vaccine around the globe and how important it is to make sure that that distribution is equitable. Can you give us some concrete steps, what your members are doing to help with this effort? On the one hand, we had to be realistic in terms of expectation management. Looking at the debate for the last few months, I somehow got the feeling that there were many people who thought that you now have a vaccine or several vaccines approved, the Pfizer-BioNTech, the Moderna, AstraZeneca, J&J, and you just need to push the button and the billions of vaccines will roll out of the manufacturing plants. Of course, vaccine manufacturing and development is extremely complex. And we knew that the demand for these vaccines would far outstrip initial supply and therefore equitable distribution would be challenging. When we look at where we are now, we are, I think, deeply conscious that we are not yet at equitable distribution. We are deeply conscious that we did see rich countries buying up most of the vaccine supplies. And we had at the same time the challenge that many poor countries hardly had access to the vaccines at the beginning. Now for COVID-19, we need at least 11 billion just for COVID-19 immunization programs. But it takes time. And what we as an industry did to respond to that is, on the one hand, we, of course, as an industry collectively, we can't talk and discuss pricing because that would be an antitrust violation. Uh, there's strict compliance with competition rules. But respecting this compliance, basically, all the companies have committed to either not-for-profit pricing or for differential tiered pricing for developing countries. And that's what we see happen, whether it's through the COVAX supplies for the Advanced Market Committee countries, that's 92 poor countries, or whether it is through the procurement done by the US or other governments meant for donations. The second big initiative the industry took, realizing that scaling up capacity building is challenging. The industry did walk the talk and did commit and implement manufacturing collaborations 
technology transfer. We have seen more than 200 voluntary collaborations between innovative vaccine manufacturers and developing country vaccine manufacturers, or between innovative and innovative. Companies did offer the spare capacity. Companies whose vaccine development were delayed or failed, such as, for example, Merck Sharp and Dome, or Sanofi, or GSK, they did offer capacity for other manufacturers. And we had non-vaccine manufacturing doing the same, such as Novartis or Bayer or many other companies. But given the urge to move faster, we also agreed with our colleagues from biotech companies from Bayer and the other pharma association to call for a five-step to urgently address and advance COVID-19 vaccine equity. Five steps are basically fairly straightforward. We called on governments to step up dose sharing. We all know rich countries moved fast, US, UK, the European Union, vaccinating their own people and even were moving towards vaccinating adolescents at the time when poor countries didn't have any doses yet. Therefore, we did call out on world leaders to do that. And we saw the response at the G7 meeting in the UK. Secondly, we did call for an optimization of production through additional partnerships and collaborations. We have seen recent announcements, for example, J&J, uh, with Biologically in India. We have seen the announcement about Pfizer-BioNTech with BioVac in South Africa. Just And we have seen collaborations of Moderna in South Korea. We have had huge collaborations between big pharma, AstraZeneca, J&J I mentioned, with Indian vaccine manufacturers. Therefore, continue to optimize production. The third element is really pull out to eliminate trade barriers. We had clear signals that some of the vaccine manufacturing scaling up was hampered by export restriction, by trade barriers. We got support from WTO, Dr. Ngozi, the new leader of WTO. She realized that trade barriers were a serious challenge and created bottlenecks. We also early on called for investing in improving country readiness. We all know that Africa, for example, is desperately short of vaccines, but at the same time, we have seen several examples, not one, but a dozen examples where countries did get vaccines and the vaccines didn't reach the people because the infrastructure was not there. The healthcare personnel administering the vaccine was not there. And last but not least, we did call on driving further innovation. Thank you, Thomas. And as we conclude, let me ask a question about reflection. So as a world, and certainly as an industry, it's been more than a year and a half. And maybe you can share with us from your members' standpoint, what are the significant lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic that maybe will be able to help us prepare for future pandemic? What do you think some of the retrospective review will tell us, the most significant lessons that we learned? I think, as always, it is important to sit down and reflect on what worked well and where did we see shortcomings. I think something which did work well is 
to collaboration, to collaborative spirits, governments willing to sit down with industry, international organizations rising to the challenge. For example, if Gavi or SEPI wouldn't have existed yet, we would really need to think about creating these specialized agencies. Global Fund, for example, I would add to that, or find on diagnostics. Therefore, really the importance, but also, if I dare say, from an industry point of view, I think many people realized the importance of the private sector, because I did acknowledge and give full credit to the regulatory agencies. I think many of the international organizations have done amazing work, and one can be proud about what WHO, in terms of the also global regulatory approval of vaccines, has done the analysis of new variants, their pandemic preparedness response, uh, quite remarkable. But at the same time, the tests, the treatments, the vaccines have been developed by scientists, have been scaled up by engineers, have come from private companies by and large, with the exception maybe of some of the Chinese. And the private sector has risen to the occasion, and we saw the importance of strong innovation ecosystem, including, if I dare say, based on a predictable, stable legal framework. Now, when we look at COVID-19, on the one hand, the world was ill-prepared for COVID-19. I think that's one of the lessons. Even some of the world's best healthcare systems were stretched to meet the demand for intensive care units, didn't have masks, didn't have personal protective equipment. When I look at the hospital situation in Northern Italy, and Northern Italy in terms of quality of service, that is Europe comparable to Munich, Milano, Munich are not that different in terms of quality. And we saw that whether it's in France, in the UK, in the US or Italy, our systems were stretched. Therefore, I have heard somebody tell me that one of the leaders who is now very much involved in pandemic preparedness for the future said the biggest mistake I committed when I was prime minister of my country was cutting the healthcare budget. Therefore, the importance of a resilient healthcare system, I think, is truly important. The other element which I also would emphasize is we all need to realize the importance of this strong innovation ecosystem. We need to be open-minded to discuss what do we need to preserve? Where do we need, for example, to invest more? I would just like to conclude there with one example. SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, we didn't know until January 10, 2020. Therefore, to some extent, you could argue the world couldn't be prepared for exactly that pandemic. We have a similar global health threat that's antimicrobial resistant, which has been with us and on the international political agenda for seven years. And we haven't done as much as would be necessary to avoid that pandemic, which in terms of cost of lives lost already now, almost a million per year, people dying from antimicrobial resistance, or the economic cost of that silent pandemic. And we know what would need to be done to make sure that we have novel antibiotics to respond to that. I think that's also a lesson learned. And I have to admit, I've noticed recently at G7 and G20 meetings, 
that COVID-19 has opened political leaders, including ministers of finance, the eyes that one needs to do something to make sure that we are better prepared for this AMR uh, challenge. Thank you, Thomas. This has been great. Thank you so much for your time for this session. Thank you very much, Ron. We're looking forward to hearing from you during the 44th World Hospital Congress. Thomas will be participating in a session called Accelerating Research, Development and Distribution of the COVID-19 Vaccine. Lessons learned from key stakeholders. Thomas will be joined with other industry experts. To our listeners, we hope you can join us at the World Hospital Congress in Barcelona, Spain, this November. You can join us in person or you can connect virtually. To learn more, please go to our website, www.worldhospitalcongress.org. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you can join us again for other podcasts. Please be safe. Goodbye.